welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This episode is being recorded live from Shop Talk in Las Vegas on Tuesday, March 21st. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and hey, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Jason's voice is... uh uh, it's halfway through the day here, and it's uh, not doing great, so we'll, we'll have to kind of see how this goes through the podcast. It's new, sexy, low voice, Jason. Yes, yes. Um, we have a special treat on the show today. We have our first venture capitalist. Uh, it's Brian O'Malley. Brian's a first partner. Possibly last. Pa- could be the last, yeah, yeah exactly. once the word gets out. <laughs> uh, Brian's a partner with Excel, uh, and Excel is one of the top-tier venture capital firms with offices in the Bay Area, London, and Bangalore. Some of the companies they have backed include, include Facebook, Facebook, Dropbox, Jet, Slack, Flipkart, and my personal favorite, Spotify. I'm a big Spotify user. Brian's been at Excel for over three years and focuses on marketplaces and next-gen consumer-oriented companies. That's from your uh, bio on the site there. I don't it's a beautiful it. bio. Okay. Um, he's yeah, led your investments. mom did a very good job writing it. She did. She did. <laughs> he has led founder on 99design. So. <laughs> he's led investments in Dollar Shave Club, Hotel Tonight, Bizarre Voice, and Skull Candy uh, that are kind of in the, the realm of our industry. So welcome to the show, Brian. Excited to have you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, uh, most of our listeners are retailers and brands. They may not have had uh, direct experience with private equity. I've had plenty myself. Um, so tell us, uh, you're at a cocktail party, uh, and it's not a startup cocktail party. Uh, maybe it's not even in the Bay Area. So yeah, you're yeah, in Chicago, yeah. you're in uh, Iowa, and you're at a cocktail party. How do you explain what you do to folks? Uh, yeah, sure. So, uh, there's the recent version of how we explain it, which is like, it's like Shark Tank, but not quite as exciting. Um, but the, uh, the more historic version is that we give, uh, founders money. We take a piece of the company as ownership. And, uh, the goal is to help them grow their company and turn it into something that's, that's kind of big and life changing for them and their customers. Um, and a lot of these companies are things that banks or traditional sources of financing would, would never touch. Um, but we're looking for, uh, outsized opportunities and things that could be, you know, real game changers. Cool. Awesome. Um, so take us a little bit through your career. So, um, you know, I, I hit some of the highlights there, but, but how, how, what led you into this, this kind of area of the venture capital world? Yeah, sure. So I think a lot of folks ended up in venture, uh, almost accidentally. Uh, for me, it was, it was a little bit more deliberate, but it starts way back. So, um, going back to my childhood, my, my dad worked for IBM. So on one part, that meant we moved about every two years and, and lived just about everywhere. On the other hand, it meant that we had a personal computer in our house from like a very early age. Mm-hmm. And so I was fortunate to grow up around computers. And uh, that led me down the path that when I was in college uh, to make some extra cash, I ended up getting a job at Motorola while I was there as a developer. And I uh, love, love writing code, love building software, but wasn't a big fan of the big company environment. And so that led me down the path of startups. And while I was there, I was fortunate to work with a couple of founding teams to help them get their companies off the ground. Um, one was an RFID uh, tag business called Matrix. Another uh, group was uh, called Compose. It was a, um, essentially a collaboration suite, similar to like what Jive ended up being. 
and um, really loved helping those guys get things going and, and kind of got the bug. And so I was fortunate to um, know some folks that were early at a company called Bow Street. And um, Bow Street was kind of very big in our own world at the time, even though no one's probably heard of it since then. And um, joined up them. They, they were essentially doing things where pulling together data from different applications. So they had one of the first XML-based APIs. Mm-hmm. And so we pulled in info from anything from like a i2 or Siebel or basically these kind of expensive enterprise systems for large companies. And um, so I ended up going there originally as an intern. It was like 25 people. Uh, came back a year later, it was like 360 people. <laughs> uh, so this was in like the 2000 time frame. And um, it, was a, it was a real trial by fire opportunity because it's 2001 hit and people stopped buying on vision and started buying on reality. Um, I went from uh, this kind of very lofty, touchy-feely business development job to you either need to build something or sell something or you're going to be out of work pretty quickly. And so um ended up living through several rounds of layoffs. I was the last one left on the West Coast. It was a Boston-based company. Um, but we ended up partnering up with IBM, which is kind of weird full circle thing. And, uh, IBM ended up buying the company, um, but started looking around and was fortunate to have one of our investors, a group called Pequot uh, Capital. They're now called First Mark. Um, ended up uh, building a relationship with those guys, got into venture a little bit earlier than I thought I would. And, um, that kind of led me down the path. And so started there, um, transitioned over to another group called Battery Ventures, um, which is a firm that's got offices in, in Boston, Israel, and the Bay Area. And Battery was a really unique opportunity for me because it was one of the few venture firms where if you show up and you hustle as a junior guy, um, you can get promoted along the way and you can have all sorts of opportunity open up. Mm-hmm. And so uh, went there in 2004 and uh, started investing in a bunch of different software companies, more traditional kinds of of SaaS businesses, as well as anything out to like drones or, um, you know, very kind of odd things at the time, um, was one of the first venture backed drone companies called in situ. Those ultimately, uh, bought by Boeing. Um, but kind of worked my way through the organization there and, uh, ended up, uh, getting to know the Excel folks, uh, really resonated with the team. And so joined uh, a little over three years ago. Cool. Awesome. So what are, um, so what are some of the investments you've led since being there? Sure. So most of these companies, when we get involved, are pretty small, right? So they, they haven't hit most most folks' radar screen yet. Um, but I split my time between uh, software businesses and uh, ultimately online merchants. And so um, since then, uh, got involved with a company called Game Time, which is a sports ticketing app that now does concerts. So think about like StubHub, but on your on your phone with a more native experience. Um, invested in a company called Luma, which is reinventing Wi-Fi for the home. Um, and so they have a mesh mesh solution that has amazing software, so you can control it all from your phone. Um, invested uh, in a company called Anchor, which I don't know if you guys have heard of as a podcast, but they're um, enabling, it's like Twitter for podcasting in some ways. So it's enabling people to take much smaller segments and be more social in nature. Um, so they don't need to have like $2,000 worth of equipment to, to do a show and to get things going. Um, so the... Was that? <laughs> Oops. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Too late. Well, your audio engineer would, you know, would appreciate this. But, uh, <laughs> um, and so those are some of the consumer things. And so you can see it's a wide smattering of different opportunities. And when we get involved, they tend to be just a couple of folks and maybe in an idea or some early customers. And so we tend to like getting involved as early as we can. Um, and then on the software side, it's, uh, uh, you know, it's a, a lot of it tends to be kind of vertically focused. So, 
Um, we've got a company called Duetto, which helps hotels price their rooms better. And now they're building a broader booking engine for, for hotels. Um, a company called Narvar, which helps uh, online merchants through everything that happens post-purchase. So um, uh, anything from package tracking to returns automation to the whole logistics side, now that logistics is customer-facing with e-commerce driving things, um, to things like Amino, where they've got a, was a team out of Zillow that's building a data-driven product to help people pick better doctors. So as you can see, there's a real wide variety um, they tend to have a common theme, though, where there's some sort of technological innovation or some sort of marketing or distribution innovation. And then a, a team of folks that, um, you know, it's willing to kind of go up against all odds and, and try to figure it out. Cool. And like, how does it work? Do you have particular criteria that you're looking for for investments to match or sure. are you, you more broad and? Yeah, it's hard. It's, it's hard because you don't want to be overly formulaic because, you know, when you look at the next big thing, like it usually doesn't conform to traditional ideas. Um, but one theme that tends to be common is that a lot of these, these products, these companies have real love from users. And so you need to define what that means by category. And so if it's a software business, maybe that's how many people in an organization use it. Um, the, you know, continued engagement. So Slack's a great example of something we were involved with from, from before it was even Slack. And, um, the engagement numbers there were just off the charts. And so there was a leading indicator that it was going to be an interesting business. Um, you know, so we're, we're looking at those sort of signs that users love a product and that's fundamentally better. And we're also looking for founders that have a vision that's, but that's maybe a little bit contrarian. Um, but where they understand their customer incredibly well and they see a vision for where they can take something and have it be, have it be really big. Right. And I think one thing that a lot of folks don't understand about venture capitalists is that it's not our job to give people money to, like build their startup, just like, out of, it's not like a charity, right? Like um, the money is not ours. It's typically given to us by, you know, pension funds, you know, uh, large, you know, endowments, like hospitals, like they, they expect it back with a return, um, which is a dirty little secret. And, uh, and so we're really looking for things that are not just good businesses, but have the chance to, to really break out. Right. And so, um, we were early investors in Jet, and a lot of people look at something like Jet and they're like, "Man, that's that's a little bit it's a little bit crazy going head up against Amazon." Um, but we kind of love it for that, right? And the team had a very unique approach where most people come to us and say, "Hey, we're going to avoid Amazon at all costs by going around at the side," and they're like, "Look, you know, Amazon's not doing very well with a big demographic. Um, it works very well for for a lot of us, and uh, we're gonna you know we're gonna try to go right after them." And so there's a much higher risk of failure in that scenario. But when you think about what success could be, it ends up having um, higher upside as well. Cool. So I think about um, 10% of the folks here are venture capitalists. Why Why do VCs come to a show like this? Are you guys... Is it really 10%? Yeah, I think they right, that's, said that's it, may, scary, it may have been um, eight, 8 to 10%. So are you guys here looking for companies to invest in, looking at trends to kind of inform your portfolio? Sure. What or none of the above? Yeah, it's hard for me to extrapolate for other people, but I'm just here for your guys' podcasts. So oh, okay. that was well, uh, obviously you know, yeah, it's, choice. Yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah. So uh, hopefully the travel was was worthwhile. Um, but uh, the guys no, look, at Anchor are going to be super proud of you. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, um, so look, it's a couple things. Uh, first of all, they do a really good job of 
coming to us and saying, hey, we'd love for you to participate on this panel. It's with some other really good folks. And a lot of times those conversations are exciting because you might know some of the other people on the panel and you know their opinions and you feel like it'll be a good conversation to share with the broader audience. So that tends to be a driver. But then on top of that, uh, we have a lot of companies that are here. And so meeting with potential candidates uh, for them to hire, uh, meeting with prospects and customers where we can provide a somewhat independent view on on why a company is interesting. Um, and then just getting to, to meet more folks, right? So this is a great opportunity where a lot of people come together in a relatively short time period. Mm-hmm. And so uh, you can you can cover a lot more ground in a, in a quick uh, quick window. Got it. Nice. And are there particular areas that you, like when you come to a commerce show like this, or like, do you have in the back of your mind, like, hey, I know AI is going to be big or augmented reality, so I'm particularly interested in sure. those kinds of things, or are you, you, you know, prepared to be surprised? Yeah, I think you need to be prepared to be surprised a bit, um, but at the same time, you also need to manage your time. And so uh, we kind of think about the concept of a prepared mind where we want to show up and already have a framework for how we can evaluate things. And when you show up at a conference like this, uh, one of the really interesting things is not just what you're interested in, but how many very similar companies are out there, right? There's a lot of companies that have smart people. They've raised a lot of money from different folks, and they're all going after the same target customers. Um, So I mentioned a business earlier called Narvar that, excuse me, that we invested in. And one of the things that was exciting about Narvar was there's literally hundreds of companies that are trying to get people to click on an ad, visit a website, you know, browse to a product, go through the shopping cart experience. And that, that space has gotten very crowded. Uh, whereas, you know, Narvar is really focused on after people click buy until the time that they come back and buy again. And that space had a fair amount more, uh, you know, white space. Oh, look at that. Thank you. Um, that had a lot more white space, and the founder there had previously run the um, post-purchase experience at Apple. He'd ran ship-to-store program at Walmart, and so he understand, understood the merchant perspective. And so when you come to something like this and you see literally, again, hundreds of companies, you're able to see who's who's a little bit different yeah. or who's approaching the problem differently, uh, whereas you know who's going to be beaten up against each other. And those spaces, they tend to commoditize faster. It becomes more of a price war and it becomes a harder place for us to play. Is that a double-edged sword though? I mean, imagine you come in and there's 10 companies that are all doing image recognition and you go, hey, that's, you know, there's not a lot of uniqueness there. Maybe that's not a, a likely to, to be a big payoff. But the flip side is if there's only one company in the space, like there's some validation uh, sure. having a couple people see the opportunity. Yeah, it's actually a little scary when you bump into a company that has no competitors <laughs> because people are smart enough that, uh, you know, if there's no competitors, there's probably a reason why. Um, but you, you usually there's there's one or two folks out there that's doing something similar and then you're trying to make a decision on, you know, which, what's the right approach. Um, but to answer your question earlier, you mentioned like, uh, you know, artificial intelligence, augmented reality. Um, we're in this, we're in this weird period right now where a lot of the mobile trends have matured. A lot of commerce trends are maturing. And so people are kind of searching for the next big thing. And, um, I think a lot of the augmented reality, you know, virtual reality stuff is still a little ways out. Like you think about, um, what needed to happen from a mobile penetration standpoint before mobile really started to grow. Like we looked at a lot of companies in 2005, 2006 where it felt like mobile should happen. It wasn't really until the iPhone came around that that materialized. 
Um, so I think that some of that is still early. Uh, and then on the flip side, pretty much every pitch we see today has some sort of artificial intelligence or machine learning component to it. And you try to figure out like who's throwing that in there because it sounds good and where is there actually value. And so a lot of the companies that I work with, they've got some component of that, but they're using it as a means to solve a broader problem, right? And so wave one of SaaS businesses was largely just moving things from premise to the cloud. And more recently, it's been, look, now that the data is all in the cloud, what can you actually do with that to build a better product of which some form of machine learning might be helpful? But it tends to be uh, the things I invest in tend to have that be a little bit more of an asterisk on the side as opposed to like the main course. Yeah. One thing um, I've seen research out by I think it was CB Insights and they show that there's a lot less investment in you know traditional e-commerce companies. And this is like you know online retailers. Sure. Um, do you, you know, is that category pretty much uninvestable now or like what's the buzz amongst VCs? Cause you've had some, yeah. you know, you've had Zappos sold for a billion dollars, but it was kind of one times revenue. And, yeah. you know, then we've recently had Mod Cloth, uh, Moose Jaw, Hay Needle kind of all going for kind of one times revenue in acquisitions. Does that, that make it less appealing to you guys? You know, cause at the end of the day, we're not investing in like an index fund, right? So we're not investing in a bucket of companies. Like we're trying to pick one company that's outstanding and that's, that's differentiated. Um, so, uh, you think about last year, I was fortunate to have, you know, some ownership in both Jet and Dollar Shave Club, which were mm-hmm. two of the better stories last year. And so you really try to reflect on, well, like why? Like what was interesting about those businesses where some of these other ones have had challenges? And, uh, in those cases, a lot of it had to do more with the acquirers where the acquirers were, were feeling pain and wanted to, um, not just add a, a component to their business, but really wanted to think about the broader team, right? And um, and so that was a, a little bit unique, I think, compared to how people were thinking about the market. Mm-hmm. Um, but investment in the sector going down is not necessarily a bad thing because I think it got to be too frothy. And I think it got to the point where there are companies that really shouldn't be raising money. They were actually fundamentally sound, good businesses, but investors were throwing money at them. And they started to set the bar for success to a point where they needed to be worth a couple billion dollars. And if you look historically at retail for companies to get to that scale, it doesn't happen overnight. It takes, you know, literally decades. And um, with inventory requirements, with changing the customer, it's really hard to continue to grow at that rate. And so I think a bunch of companies have collapsed in some ways under the weight of all the invested capital. Um, and so we're, we're working with companies. Um, I invested in a business called uh, Away Travel that at the end of the day sells uh, luggage. Uh, Direct-to-consumer is founded by some folks out of Warby Parker and, and Casper that know that model pretty well. And we're trying to be very thoughtful about what the right amount of money is to raise ever because mm-hmm. it's naturally a business that has a very good economic model. You don't have that many SKUs. Um, they're getting the vast majority of their customers organically. And so there's a lot of things that are going really well. And so the natural model historically would be like, well, let's pile in more money. Um, but we're trying to be thoughtful and, and trying to almost work, think of like venture capital as a drug and trying to like get off the drug as opposed to like double down on it. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, so then, uh, it does seem like there's a lot more interest in what we, we, um, so Andy at, at Bonobos kind of quite yeah. this digital native vertical brand, DNDB. Sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. uh, and Jason has a man crush on Andy. So we, we have to always talk about that. That's uh, okay. <laughs> Shout out to Andy. Yeah. You, are you wearing the, wearing the pants right now? <laughs> Not today. Uh, actually, as a favor to Andy, I don't wear it. Exactly. 
Yeah, he lets you use the term in, in exchange for not wearing the pants. Exactly. Yeah, that sounds fair. Um, so since you've had the success at Dollar Shave Club, yeah. now you're in this luggage company. Yeah, yeah. Is that is that an area that's thematically really interesting to you, or, or do you think that like when you have that billion dollar exit, it's almost like it's past its prime? No, I, I think that we're still in a relatively early day um, format of people building brands and where one of the best places to build a brand is is online because of the access to customers, the data you have about them. It's a lot cheaper than opening up a store, you know, day one and then crossing your fingers and hoping people show up. I think what what people have found, though, and, and this has certainly been the case with Bonobos, is that it's not about only being online. Right. That can help you get to your first, you know, 20, 30, 40 million in revenue. But some of those lower hanging fruit ad channels start to tap out. And so Bonobos has been very successful with their guide shop concept, mm-hmm. um, which not only gets foot traffic, but also increases the, you know, the online revenue in the area as well. And so I think we're finding at the end of the day that, um, customers want things to be omnichannel. They want to experience product and sometimes in a physical experience, they want to experience um, a great online experience as well. Uh, the benefit of starting digitally native is that you can be more capital efficient getting going. You can understand your customers a little bit better. And then by the time you move offline, um, you can do so from a position of power versus historically, if you're a brand, you kind of walked into a Nordstrom or someplace like that with your tail between your legs, hoping they take your product. Yeah. And so I know with Bonobos, those conversations early days with Nordstrom were very different because they had an established brand, they had an established customer base. And that was more interesting for Nordstrom's to think about. I'm, I'm curious. I want to go back. We talked about two of the big exits last year in uh, jet and dollar shave club. And a number of us think that <clears throat> one of the factors in uh, at least the valuation, if not the decision to acquire those two companies, was the talent pool and leadership, like that they were sure. partly an aqua hire. When you're looking at new investments, like how how much do you weigh the, the sort of your evaluation of the management team versus the the business concept? Yeah, it's it's one of these things where you can't have one without the other. Um, so we see some great teams that are just barking up the wrong trees and those, those are hard to back. And we see some, ama- see some amazing ideas where the team is just not going to evolve. And, and those are also hard to back. And so, um, we, we really need a combination of the two. And I think a lot of times when people think about a great team, um, they think about someone like Mark who had success at Quidzy or diapers before. And that, you know, it's a little bit of a chicken and egg problem where if I haven't been successful already, how am I going to go out and, and raise money? And I think a lot of times what people misinterpret is that success in a business is one way of establishing credibility, but there's a lot of other ways of establishing credibility as an early team. Um, One of which is just understanding the market cold. Like you'd be surprised how many pitches I sit through where I understand someone's market better than they do. And I've spent literally a half hour thinking about it. Right. So that's a scary place to start out. Um, You see a lot of teams that have limited or no self-awareness. Right. So what you really want is you want people to come in and say, hey, we're very strong at X, but we're almost clueless or we don't really know how to do Y. And that's something that we can come in and help out. We know lots of people. We can help them recruit. But the folks that come in with all the answers where they don't actually have all the answers, that's also a little bit scary. But, yeah, we're seeing um, with acquisitions and it's not just in, in, in retail. It's it's across the board where um, the value of the team to the acquirer is ultimately puts a multiple on the opportunity because from Walmart's perspective, they're not thinking about it purely as jet sales migrating over. They're thinking about the impact that the jet team can have on the broader Walmart customer base. 
as well as Walmart's market value. And so if you think about it as like a percent dilution on on Walmart, even though it's a big number, um, it's it's a pretty uh, smart hedge strategy against uh, competitors coming into the space. Interesting. Uh, I'm a little curious. A lot of my clients on the retail side um, are now sort of trying to compete with you. Like a lot of them have established uh, investment arms and are doing a lot of, of startup incubation and things like that. Is um, like, how does that change the dynamics in the VC industry? Are they additive or competitive? Or is to really have a strong retail partnership? They they almost need to understand their identity first before they go figure out how they can partner with with big brands. Um, but uh, so it, it's been more complementary, and uh, and I think the biggest challenge is that you have these large pools of capital that are coming over, um, and typically the investment team is different from the operating team. And so they might be willing to throw in money and the founders see that as, Oh, I've got this great relationship with XYZ company, but the operating unit has no incentive. They don't know who you are. And so when we're advising our businesses about these potential relationships, um, we say, Hey, this could be a great avenue in for you guys to work more closely, but you ultimately need to get to the operating team and you ultimately need, need to make sure that there's the right incentive for those folks to work with you um, and really think through the partnership. I think that's a great insight. Uh, we, I certainly have worked with a lot of operators where their own internal investment arm brings stuff to them yeah. with some expectation that they have an obligation. Yeah, and, no, I mean, at the end of the day, the operators have to run their business unit the best way they see fit. And so, um, look, sometimes there's just money and, and uh, you know, money's important for building companies. But when you can tie it together with a strong relationship with the operating unit where there's a lot of value, I mean, that's just that's just an amazing fit. And, um, and you need to make sure that you don't become too beholden to one other company because then that can impact how you act as an independent entity. But these are all things that we, we've dealt with, you know, dozens of times. Um, and, uh, and I think there can be, you know, there can be a lot of value, but you got to understand, um, you know, who these businesses are, why it makes sense to them. A lot of times these uh, investment teams have more turnover than you do at a venture capital firm. So the person who signs up the deal might not be there a year or two later. So understanding how they think about the organization internally um, and understanding how that's going to evolve. Because ultimately these relationships, when you're showing up from an investing standpoint, it used to be you think about it under like a five-year term. Now it's like closer to 10 years. And so you want to make sure that the people who are on your team um, around the company are there to stay. A lot of times these companies will make decisions just to get out of the, the whole thing too. So, you know, you're, yeah. you think you've got this great partner there and then suddenly, you know, they call and they're like, Hey, you know, my parent company decided they had a rough quarter and they're, they're getting rid For of sure. this venture arm. Yeah. yeah you got to think when, when, if you think about how quickly people come into the market, you got to realize they could just as quickly get out of the market. And so we're, we're, we're in this business for, you know, for good years and for bad years, because at the end of the day, this is like the only thing that we do. Um, and so when, when our companies go through hard times, they know that we're going to be there. Uh, I think when you have someone that's recently come into market, whether it's a new investment fund or whether it's someone where it's more strategic capital, um, you got to be thoughtful about how much you're actually counting on them in the future, as opposed to thinking about this as a one-off deal where, you know, hopefully there's the right incentives there, but if, company goes through hard times down the road, you don't know if they're going to be cutting a check or not. Cool. Let's talk a little bit about the future of retail. So we, we talk on the show a lot about what I call Molligeddon, which is like 
you know, it's being, being a mall based retailer is, is almost like a, a death knoll right now. So we've got Macy's did you, closing. Did you store. coined the mall again? I think so. Yeah. Okay. I like to, yeah. Yes. I mean, for sure is the number one amplifier of it. Yes. Not yeah. yes. It's not exactly trending on Twitter, but it is, uh, someday. Maybe someday. if you, uh, in, in if our you tweet, one tweeted yeah. little corner of Twitter, it kind of is. It kind yeah. of is. Okay. I like it. I like it. <laughs> uh, so we have Macy's closing stores, Sears, JCPenney kind of joined, uh, a lot of bankruptcies here lately. Sure. What, what, what do you think is the future of retail? Is it, it you know, does it kind of go away and we all go online or what, what yeah, happens yeah. there? So it was interesting. So, um, uh, another firm that we compete with, uh, likes to make bold statements, made a, a statement about how all stores are going away in the future. And I don't know whether they really believe that or whether that was just a sensationalist comment, but I certainly don't believe that all stores are going away. I, I for one enjoy, you know, store experiences and, and there's, um, certain retailers that do an amazing job of what, what it is in, in person. Um, I think what, what is going away is the stores that are solely there to let you buy product, right? It used to be that, um, if you wanted to, to get something, you needed to drive to a store. Otherwise you just straight up weren't going to get it. And so if your value proposition is around merely access, people are going to be able to buy stuff, whether it's from Amazon or some other web retailer, they're going to be able to get access to products and it's going to be a, you know, a good experience and it's going to be a fair price. Um, so when I think about this, uh, Mulligan, uh, concept, um, I think it's just raised the bar where if your whole value prop is that you're next to the Sabaro and, you know, you, you sell shoes or whatever, mm-hmm. like that's, that's not going to last and yeah. it might not die out overnight, but it's gonna, it's gonna slowly, slowly go away. And, uh, and a lot of times people put offline or, or more traditional retailers all in the same bucket. And we find that, um, you know, some are very savvy and some recognize the challenge they have and they're being, uh, aggressive and, and others are just sticking their head in the sand and, you know, almost pretending like it's not happening. And so I don't think it's this kind of blanket statement. And you even see some of the mall providers, um, cause they're, they're pretty savvy too. They see what's happening and they're trying to reframe the shopping experience around live events. Um, they're trying to make the, the store format very different. So they're shrinking square footage in stores. Um, so I think there will continue to be some form of a, of an offline shopping, uh, experience, but it's going to maybe be less about shopping and be more about the experience. Uh, so speaking of the future of retail, we, you know, a lot of the listeners of this show have been in the digital retail space from the beginning. And I, I, I think it's fair to say a number of them have entrepreneurial concepts that they're interested in exploring. Like any uh, advice or common sort of mistakes you see when, when companies are pitching you on new? Yeah, ventures in the space. Yeah, definitely. Um, so there's a, there's a few things. So, uh, one thing we see a lot of is, um, look, I get that we all represent money and money is green, but at the end of the day, we all think that we're individuals and, and we kind of value that. And so you see a lot of these kind of blanket requests that are, um, and whether it's like the mail merge where like your name is in a different font or whether it's spelled brain versus Brian, like those are very rookie mistakes. Um, all the way down to just people that don't, uh, don't have any context for your, you know, your history or your background or what's worked well for your firm. And it, it, it literally takes five minutes to look up someone's background and, um, and to understand what's been successful for their firm or what's maybe not been successful. And, uh, 
and to tailor the tailor the conversation, right? And to highlight, um, you know, what's particularly relevant about about um, about your business. And uh, and I think a lot of a lot of times we see folks where they just haven't done the work. And like when we're getting pitched, we're not just thinking about you pitching us. We're thinking about you pitching a potential customer. We're thinking about you pitching someone who's getting paid a lot of money to work at another company to take a big cut, pay cut to come work for, for you. And so we're extrapolating that if you do a pretty poor job getting us excited and tailoring the conversation to, to us, you're probably going to do that in other conversations as, as well. And that's kind of a non, non-starter out of the gate. And so a lot of times people feel like, hey, if I get this warm intro from someone you know on LinkedIn, like I'm golden and I'm set up for a meeting. And the reality is like half the people that I'm connected to on LinkedIn, like I don't even remember where they came from. It was like, it's kind of like who you went to a conference with in like 2007. Mm-hmm. You know, that's kind of your your crowd. Um, My favorite part is even one step worse than that is the endorsements on LinkedIn. Oh, for sure. <laughs> Yeah, people yeah, yeah. I don't know recommending me for things I don't do. Yeah, no, I'm in, I'm endorsed <laughs> for like dog grooming, and yeah. I, don't, I don't even have a pet. So, um, yeah, it's uh, the signal to noise ratio has gotten a little bit off there. Um, but look, if you know someone that's been backed by a venture firm, like if you get a note from one of your founders about a company, you're going to take that meeting 100. Um, percent If you get a note from someone that's uh, you know an accountant that you worked with on a deal eight years ago. You're better to just blindly email the person directly, but have it be targeted. What what are the what's the funnel look like? So you probably get like, you know, I don't know what maybe a month. You probably get hundreds of requests to pitch. You probably see tens, you know, ten, twenty, thirty a month. I mean, individually or at a firm level? Uh, individually, just kind of like yeah, so individually. I don't know if it's hundred. Yeah, maybe it's uh, you know a hundred, uh, two hundred. Yep. You probably meet with. Um, 20 to 30 companies. Um, and then you really quickly try to narrow it down to having one, maybe two active conversations. Yeah. And I think one of the things when you first get into this business is that everything is kind of interesting. Yeah. Right. Like there's a lot of things that you kind of twist it and you're like, oh, well, if this happens and if this happens, then this could be a really exciting company. And you almost need to be ruthless from the standpoint of saying, look, if this isn't something I'm going to write a check for, I need to cut it off as quickly as possible because A, that's good time management for B and for, for me and B, that's um, ultimately the best interest of the entrepreneur. You see there's a lot of tire kickers in venture capital where they almost use entrepreneurs as a way to learn about markets yeah. where they don't have any real sincere interest in writing a check. Or, and sometimes they don't have the ability to write a check. Like you have people that they still have the shingle out, but they don't have any new funds. Um, so, uh, so I think as an entrepreneur, the way I think about it is look, your job of the first meeting is to get a second meeting and your job of the second meeting is to not have any more meetings unless they're going to write a check. Yeah. Right. And so you, you, even as a root, even as an entrepreneur, you want to be ruthless about where you're spending your time and focus in on the highest probability folks. Um, and then from there, it's, you know, it's one to two serious conversations a month. And then you end up investing in maybe one or two companies a year. Yeah. And a lot of that is just because it's a business that doesn't scale very well. You know, we spend a lot of time with our founders. Um, we're in these companies for a really long time. And, uh, and if you're, onboarding too many new investments you just don't have time to help out the ones that you're already involved with yeah so my the corollary to that is always to entrepreneurs you know they'll get really excited they've got a meeting at vcx and i'm always like that's great but 
while you're in the Bay Area, you should be meeting like 40 people because, yeah, absolutely. you know, because there's, you know, the, the probability of them clicking with you is pretty low when you think about that yeah, number yeah. scale there. And well, it's also yeah. one of those things that, I mean, the, the venture industry has the rap of being a herd mentality. Yeah. And it's like totally justified. Yeah. Um, because, uh, especially now. I heard lemmings, but okay, herd. Lemmings, yeah. <laughs> Either way, it's not good. Yeah. And I think a lot of it is, um, you know, people have a tough time getting conviction and, uh, there, there is a reality that if you have a process that is moving or other people are interested, you'll get more attention and sincere interest from others. And it's unfortunate that that's the way it is, but it's better to not fight it. And it's better to play into that. Yeah. And there's a fine dance between overly shopping what you're doing. Um, and again, having folks feel like you're just you know, reaching out to a hundred people, yeah. um, you know, versus focusing in on who are the dozen or two dozen people. And, and when I say people, it really comes down to individuals, not just firms, um, who will, who will understand your business and, and take it seriously. Um, but yeah, if you, if you concentrate the conversations too narrowly, then in some ways you give us too much, you know, power to draw things out and, and to, to let it, let it play out or negotiate a deal that might not be in the best interest of the founders. Got it. So have you had a chance to walk the show at all? Or have you been all meetings here? Yeah. Well, I've just been knocking on sweet doors trying to find podcasts, but you know, yeah. it took yeah. me a little while. You don't so. have to do that anymore. You're yeah. at the top of the hill. Now. No, I'm good. I'm good. It's kind of downhill from here exactly. <laughs> in more ways than one. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I, I walked this door, uh, or walked the, um, you know, sure. area a little bit. Yeah. And any sort of takeaways in terms of what you've, you notice as the key trends or things that surprised you? I mean, I, the biggest takeaway is the conference business is a good business. Yeah. <laughs> these yeah. guys, these guys are have a machine going and it's very well run. Um, no, it's, it's, it's tough. And I think one of the challenges of doing this for a while is you end up getting um, a little bit jaded. And so you see a lot of the same trends over and over again. Uh, and it becomes easy to be dismissive. Um, and so, uh, yesterday I was at, uh, the Y Combinator demo day, which is a, you know, famous incubator and, uh, they have 60 companies present, um, you know, two days in a row. And, uh, and again, it's, it's hard to look at some of these things with fresh eyes because, you know, you've seen the Uber for X many times over. Um, but, uh, the whole theme this time was like, uh, you know, something, but it was in a new area. It's like. This yeah, they had a lot of stuff Japan, in, in Africa stuff. and in yeah. India, which actually is a little bit easier because I don't spend my time investing in either of those markets. Um, but it's uh, yeah, it's it, it's complicated, right? And that's really where um, great founders and great teams help us see through the noise uh, because there's a lot of noise out there. Nice. One one last question. Um, so at Channel Advisor, we started in 01 and raised 90 million cap in capital and, and went public. The uh, One of the things we did is we invested in a lot of hardware. And that was great because when Cyber Monday would come around, all our competitors would get just totally swamped and go up. Yeah. They would go down for like a week and we'd take all their customers and, and all that kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, But now in the SaaS business, it's a lot harder with cloud computing because you, you can't just kind of like scale the infrastructure to get in front of folks. What um, and, and I've I've been on a couple boards. You can a little bit, right? Like there's the S3 outage the other day, which yeah. impacted some people. And so yeah, a little not, bit. not Amazon though, by the way. No, Amazon's cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They've yeah. got their own secret, you know, S4 thing going on somewhere. They're multi-zone and you, yeah, 
Yeah. If you were single zone, then you went down. No, but, that's, but that's a good point, though, right? Yeah. Where some of the companies that were a little bit more savvy about that didn't have the same outages. And yeah. Some of it's also just a maturity thing. Yeah. So how do you so, – so I've been on some boards and stuff, and it's tough because I see these SaaS companies get up to three to five million bucks. And then suddenly they've got 80 competitors and, you know, and it becomes really hard for the buyer then to kind of like differentiate. And when I look at the show floor, there's like, I couldn't count the logos of the number of kind of companies here. It feels like there's almost this vendor bubble because my, my yeah. theory is the cost created company has gone you know way, oh, way down. down dramatically. So yeah, it's a little bit like Groundhog Day, right? You walk in and you're like, Hey, didn't I just see this? And it's like, Oh, the colors yeah. were a little bit different. Yeah. So how do you counsel your companies yeah, to, yeah. to avoid that? So look, I, I think the challenge is, is that if you're if you're barking up an interesting tree, uh, again, other people who are maybe working on markets that are not as interesting are going to evolve and they're going to change and they're come at, going to come after you. I, I think the the best strategy is uh, the companies that really build a community around their product, right? Where they um, they don't just have a good solution, but their customers identify with the brand. Um, they're able to whether they do local user groups whether they have an annual summit, um, they become, the relationships become more than just a a vendor and a customer. And the customers ultimately see that vendor relationship as something that's important to their career, where they're going to get promoted because of a relationship they have with a vendor, because of a community that they're a part of. And when you have those kinds of things um, come together, uh, it tends to, uh, it tends to raise the bar at least for what someone else needs to show up with in order to, to, to kick you out. Um, but it's, it's a little bit, um, it cuts both ways too, because some of these solutions are very easy to implement, but the easier they are to implement, the easier they are to rip out. Yeah. And so I mentioned this company Duetto earlier, where at the end of the day, they're doing these heart and lung transplants into, uh, hotel booking systems. Mm. And man, that's a, that's a, that's not fun, right? Yeah. Um, you know, these things are like, uh, you know, the modern systems are green screen, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, so that's, that's really tough for them to get going. But once they're in, it's, it's super sticky. Yeah, there's no trick. Right? Yeah. And so um, I invested in a company called Bizarre Voice and another company called Koopa around the same time. And Bizarre Voice was very easy to implement. And so it grew really, really quickly. Whereas Koopa was like more like the, you know, the tortoise versus the hare. And it just kind of like plotted along because it's procurement software, right? And the last thing you want to do is you want to sell the procurement guy because they're just going to grind you all day long. Um, but it was ultimately very mission critical software for these organizations to manage their spend. And so it took longer to grow, um, but ultimately it's a much stickier product, right? And so you, some of these things cut both ways. Cool. And that sort of follow-up question of that, is it important to have a true sort of competitive moat do you are you looking for companies that have some real competitive advantage or is it enough to just be have a head start uh so we're uh we're ultimately thinking more about the competitive advantage than the head start right if you think about a lot of our best companies they were not the first ones to be doing something right so when facebook showed up you already had myspace you already had friendster um, they just executed better, right? When Spotify showed up, you already had things like Pandora. Um, you know, when it, it, you kind of go down the list and what's, what's interesting is in hindsight, a lot of the companies that win the biggest were not the first mover. Um, they're actually able to learn from some of what came before them and to build a, a, a more differentiated product. I notice we're all using iPhones, for example. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so, um, 
and, and so I, I think we we tend to focus more on what's the vision that the team has for how a market's going to evolve and how does that intersect them in the future, right? And so um, we will deliberately invest in things that we know are behind, um, but that we think have a differentiated approach. Um, I mentioned this company, Luma, earlier that's building a next-generation home Wi-Fi solution. We knowingly invested in them um, after looking at other companies in the space that were further along, but uh, we thought that the team had a unique perspective, and we thought that they were building a solution that had the right long-term roadmap. And so um, those sort of come-from-behind situations are hard. A lot of times the first mover has more access to capital. Mm-hmm. Um, you think about, again, where MySpace was with, you know, after uh, Fox bought them, they had all sorts of access to capital. Um, but ultimately, um, you know, the product wasn't the right fit. And so th- those can be hard things when you're in that period of coming from behind. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, ultimately, like great products win and great teams win. And you just need to be patient. Nice. Well, Brian, that's probably a great place to stop because it's happened again. We burned through our allotted time. So really want to thank you for taking time and uh, congratulations on being on the top e-commerce podcast in the industry. Yeah, it's been a real honor. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Brian. And uh, it was a great honor to have you on the show. We appreciate it. Until next time, happy e-commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.